Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Hey, take your Bibles to turn to Luke chapter 12. Again, I want to welcome you. Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21, as we continue with obstacles to discipleship. Obstacles to discipleship. Let me ask you, as you're turning to Luke chapter 12, let me ask you this. How much money is too much money? Anyone here got a, a thing? You just say, this, this is too much money. Anyone here would like to put a limit on how much money you want to make or earn in your life? Just, just a little bit more. Yeah, that's usually the phrase. People ask, how much should I plan for retirement? Should I, I give more money to charity? A- am I responsible to leave an inheritance to my children? How do I leave anything to my children if I'm struggling just taking care of myself? How am I supposed to make ends meet with inflation growing and taxes increasing? These are the questions that many people are asking and are very anxious about. Money is the number one issue for marriages, uh, for marriage arguments, and one that occupies both the poor and the rich. Do I have enough money. It's no surprise that there are different views of money. On one hand, you have one representative of Congress, who is doing quite well, by the way, who says that a system that allows people to become billionaires is immoral. She goes on to ask, is it really, when it really comes down to the question of, isn't $10 million enough? Maybe a good question. If you're in Venezuela, though, if you have 10 million of whatever their dollars are, you can buy maybe a loaf of bread. So is $10 million enough. But then on the other hand, you have a philosophy that is captured in the song Money. The best thing in life are free, but you can keep them for the birds and the bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. So these two philosophies are engaged in a tug of war in our politics, our communities, our culture, and even our marriages and our families. How one thinks of money is important. This is, you need to grasp this. How one thinks and uses their money is important. We have a love-hate relationship with money. We hate that everything seems to boil down to how much money we have, and yet we also love to have more of it and what it helps us to obtain. So today we're going to have the money talk. We do this maybe once a year. We may typically when it comes to scripture, and here we are today. It's important for us as Christians to understand what the Bible has to say about money, especially in this financial and economically turbulent times. Believe it or not, and this is what I want you to get, believe it or not, how you view and spend your money has eternal significance. So let me say that again, because this is what Jesus is boiling it down today. He says there's an obstacle to being a disciple of Christ, of following Christ, of having an uncompromising commitment, and that is going to be that of money. And it's important to understand how you view and use money has eternal significance. In our passage this morning, Jesus is once again interrupted. 
when he is teaching his disciples by a man wanting Jesus to intervene in his inheritance dispute with his family. So with that, we are in Luke chapter 12. We're on verse 13. We're going to read the first two verses. They'll be here on the monitor. But please have your Bibles open. Always, I encourage you to bring your Bibles, uh, your tablets, whatever it is. Take notes. Uh, follow along with us. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Father, so give us wisdom. This is a talk that not many of us like, but many of us need. It's one that we struggle with, but yet we tend to, it, 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 it's many times, it's just easier just to ignore or just to just keep it out of our minds, thinking and hoping that everything will come together in the end. But Father, I pray that you give us wisdom. Help us to listen with attentive ears. Help our hearts to be open to receive what your scripture has. And then may we then respond to the Holy Spirit's work. Above all, Father, we want to glorify you with all that you've given us. We pray that you just be with us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Luke notes that as Jesus was preparing his disciples for persecution, remember that's the context. You will face persecution. Again, I'll bring you back to last week's message on that and then three weeks earlier than that. And he's warning them that they need to face, they're going to face persecution. And he warns them about adopting the practices of the Pharisees. Remember the leaven of the Pharisees. And he encourages them, on the other hand, that God the Father accepts and values them. A man begins to interrupt Jesus, looking for help in securing a larger share of his family's inheritance. Now, at first, Jesus seems a little exasperated at the interruption and simply asks the man, uh, the man uh, why the man thinks that this is part of Jesus' ministry. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says, who made me an arbitrator or judge over you? And what we recognize is that one day God will judge. And he is an arbitrator, the mediator between God and man. But in this case, this man wanted him to do something in the earthly realm that Jesus is not called to do. Now, it was not unusual, though, in those days for the rabbis or teachers, he calls them teachers, it's a rabbi, it was not unusual for people to go to the rabbis and the teachers and ask for help. They, they were very influential, they were men who were, who were recognized by the society, by the culture, by the groups of people, and they were held in high esteem. So it wasn't uncommon for people to go to them and say, help us uh, dis, uh, do, uh, with our disagreement, by the way. Paul says that's actually one of the things the church is to do in this day of age. He says, if you are going to judge angels, can you not judge between one another the disagreements? When you have a disagreement, maybe it's between your wife and yourself. Maybe it's between you and another brother in Christ. The church is actually one of the places that you should go to when it seems like you cannot find an end result. Why? Because this is what God has called us to do. So it wasn't uncommon to do this, but Jesus recognized, he, this is not my ministry. He's not there to help in, in the conflict and the disagreement. And in those days, what's interesting is that when, uh, when a father would die, his estate or his belongings would go to the uh, eldest uh, son. Now, if you had an eldest daughter, she would skip. It went to the eldest son. And he would get the bulk of the estate 
And in many cases, he then would decide if he would give any money then to his brothers or sisters. Now, I don't know, anyone here that who is, a, is a second son, third son, would you trust your older brother in this case? Some of you might. Well, in this case, this guy doesn't trust his older brother. His older brother, he's not getting what he feels he deserves. And so he comes to Jesus and says, will you talk to my older brother? And would you help me to get more of the estate? To be the youngest of son was no guarantee of any income. You were at the mercy of the whims of your oldest brother. And you could imagine how that might turn out at times. Did not feel like he was getting his fair share. But instead of receiving an affirmative answer from Jesus, the young man is about to get a lesson on greed, covetousness, and selfishness that's exhibited by a desire for more money. Now, this is just on a side note. This is just me talking. If I lived during the time of Jesus knowing what I know now, I don't know if I would raise my hand and ask him a question. Because <laughs> uh, Jesus uses everything as a teaching moment. And by the way, that's what we should do here. Uh, these teaching moments are ways in which we can share the gospel. And Jesus is actually going to share a portion of the gospel here as we go. Instead of reason, we look at verse 15. He doesn't get the answer he's looking for. Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, what you're seeing here is Jesus gets interrupted. Hey, give me my money. Jesus then turns to his disciples and he answers them, this man, by teaching his disciples a spiritual truth. And he warns them about covetousness with a stark warning that life is not about obtaining more possessions. Now, uh, in our society, and even through societies, that's something that just goes against the worldview. Our life is about obtaining and attaining more. You may recall that old bumper sticker that proclaimed, He who dies with the most toys wins. Anybody remember that old bumper sticker from the 70s and 80s? But then there came out another bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And again, how many of you have ever seen a funeral procession with a U-Haul behind it? And even if that's the case, what would you do with the belongings in the U-Haul? Just throw it in the grave with them? Yet we understand that money makes the world go round. It's an old phrase. Money makes the world go round. It's an old phrase that describes the importance and desire of to have more money. One online writer in his essay on that subject, Money Makes the World Turns Around, says one of the popular sayings you hear today is that money rules the world in today's society. And if you have more money, it is true that you can get anything you have ever imagined of having. By the way, I think this is the, the lure of Instagram. And things of that nature, of those who are now influencers who now go around and post their wonderful vacations and all the wonderful things they do. What does it do? It creates a desire for more. I've been challenged by my kids and grandkids and others seeing that. Uh, remember the old Sears Roebuck book? You know, we couldn't wait till that come. And, and during Christmas, we would spend our time looking through that book, circling and all the things that we want. What do we do? We were teaching ourselves how to desire more this is what I, we even have a phrase called window shopping 
Now today, in today's world, especially in California and LA, you can do more than window shopping. You're allowed to walk in and take it, take whatever you want off the shelves and not pay it. But don't go in there without a mask. Just, yeah, it has to be a less than a thousand. Yeah, let me give you some legal advice. It needs to be under $950. He goes on. Have you ever imagined living without money? Do you want to be there? Have you ever thought about just living off the grid? It's just not possible for people to survive without money. Money makes life easier. There's no doubt that with money, you can do miracles. You can do many things. Money not only makes life easier. Now, this is coming from a worldly worldview, an earthly worldview. But it also, he says, makes life meaningful. And to be honest, many of us would probably agree with that. My life has more meaning if I can do more things, have more things. Money gives us joy. It helps us turn our dreams into reality. And even though money cannot solve all our our problems, it's a panacea for more of our problems. In other words, with more money, I can at least put a greater salve on it, on whatever it is that I feel that I'm hurting. One example of this type of worldview concerns Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. He's the third richest man in the world. And according to one newspaper, (coughs) the Dutch city in the Netherlands has agreed to spend weeks taking down a historical bridge so that Jeff Bezos' new gigantic superyacht can reach the open seas this summer. The Amazon's founder's 470-foot-long three-mast ship, by the way, it also, it's so large it has another yacht that comes along with it, with a helipad, is roughly $500 million and is under construction in the Netherlands. But the pleasure boat will be too tall to pass under Rotterdam's uh, landmark Coven Shaven Bridge, which only has 130-foot clearance. As a workaround, the mega billionaire and boat maker Oceana, who's making the boat for him, reportedly asked Rotterdam's officials to temporarily dismantle the iconic bridge and they pledged to reimburse the city for the expenses. I got so much money, I can tear down an reg- uh, iconic bridge and just rebuild it. I can't even pay the city to fill the pothole that's in front of our house. How do we do that? This is a life that you and I could not even imagine. Well, but maybe dream of. Even King Solomon understood the importance of money. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, 19, he writes, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. I wonder how many of us today have that type of thought process. I have to admit, there's times I do, and I'll share a little bit more as we go on. All of us want a little bit more. All of us would say we need a little bit more. However, Jesus is warning his disciples about adopting this earthly worldview and thought processes that the world has. To hammer down this point, Jesus tells them a parable in verse 16. So follow along with me if you would, please. And he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, the things that you have built, the things that you have attained, going back to Christ's words, whose will they be? As a reminder, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. And it calls its hearers to respond to the truth. And there are several things to point out about this farmer. Number one, the land did belong to the farmer. And he had every right to reap its good profits, its goods and to profit from it. The farmer had every right to determine the best use of his property. If he needed newer barns and needed to tear them down, he had every right to determine that and to do so. The farmer is thinking ahead of the future and his retirement. So he's being, a, you know, he's being wise, right? He, he, he's thinking ahead. And the farmer wants to enjoy the spoils of his work. Each and every one of those things are good and positive things that scripture will call us to do. These are things that you and I should be doing. They're, they're, it's a skill of, of, of godly living. It's wisdom. However, if you notice of all those things he's doing there, Jesus calls him a what? A fool. You fool. Now, as we said before, Jesus is not uh, uh, calling him a moron or, or lacking of intelligence or being ignorant, but one who disregards God in his decision. A fool who said in his heart there is no God, right? A fool is one who lives their lives as if they will never stand before God in the judgment. So they make decisions in their life as there is no God. Unfortunately, there may be fools here with among us today. I will have to tell you, there are times that I am a fool. That I am living, desiring, thinking, and making decisions as if there's no God. We all do if we're honest. And that's what discipleship is, is learning that skill of godly living. Of learning how to be wise and not a fool. However, the problem with this farmer is that he is self-obsessed. He is self-obsessed. Go back and look at that passage. Six times he refers to the self with the word I. I have nowhere to store. I will do this. I will tear down. I will store. I will say to my soul. Self is, it's all about him. Five times he uses the word my. My crops, my barns, my grains, my goods, my Soul. Do you see a pattern here? What's going on? Why is this man a fool? Because he is self-obsessed. In this case, Yahweh declares him a fool because in the end, he will not take any of his money or his wealth or his barns with him into eternity. King Solomon laments this when he writes in Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 2. You see it here on the monitor. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, Solomon writes. And it lies heavy on mankind. 
A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honors so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. This, it is a previous or grievous evil. Now, as you're taking your Bibles and turn to Psalms 49, if you would. Psalms, middle of the Bible, the Old Testament. Look at chapter 49. Solomon is not calling God evil, but he recognizes in the end, we are not the arbitrators of our eternal state. And even of our earthly goods, even when we make a trust, even when we make these types of things, in the end, we do not get to take them with us. David warns about this in Psalms chapter 49. If you're there with me, look at verse 16. David sings, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry what? Nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Let me tell you. If Jeff Bezos, if he does not come and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and repent and put his faith in him, he may in this world be able to move bridges. He will not be able to open the gates of heaven when he gets into eternity. Thank you. And we need to understand that. But how many of us would not say, boy, I would like the life of a Jeff Bezos. Hey, I will take 10%. Of what Jeff Bezos has. Jesus then warns his disciples though. It's not exactly what you have. But he warns them. About anyone who pursues wealth. Or the earthly treasures. The problem isn't so much what the man has. It's what the man is pursuing. Look at Luke chapter 12. And look at verse 21. So is the one. What does that mean? So is the one. So is the one who is a fool who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. The point of the parable is that you and I must not pursue the things of God or we should, excuse me, pursue the things of God and not of this world. He's telling us, listen, if you're going to be a disciple of me, you need to understand this. Do not pursue the things of the world nor the things that the world can buy. We see this in 1 John, right? Chapter 2, 15 through 17, I believe. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But you and I love the things of the world. They make us happy. They give us stature. They give us comfort. They give us stability. And all those things are true in some respect. However, he's warning his disciples of having this type of attitude. And this is a strong statement and one that goes against the grain of worldly wisdom and frankly against what many professing Christians think today. Because our minds are concerned, how do I get that, uh, you know, that, that, that raise? How do I get that promotion? How do I get that investment? How do I get that retirement? How do I get that which I want and need? Some might have a question, well, is money good or evil? 
The answer is simply it's both. Money is a way in which we put value to our production and consumption. The Bible never instructs us that money is evil. You know where I'm going here. But we can be drawn to Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 here on the monitor. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of those who profess Christ, those who proclaim to be disciples of Christ, have now been lured away because of their craving for that which money brings them. Money as a commodity is not evil, but a love for it is the root of all kinds. The love of money is dangerous in these two ways. Money can make life easier. There's nothing wrong with that, but we can make an idol out of wealth. Wealth is like anesthesia. It may deaden the spiritual pain and numb us to our need of God. That's the problem. Jesus warned his disciples in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. We'll get to this uh, probably later in the year. That no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus warns. It cannot be done. So how you and I think of and use our money exposes. Now listen, please. How you and I think of and use our money exposes if our heart is full of covetousness, a desire to have what my neighbor has, if it creates jealousy, if it creates laziness, or lack of trust in God's providence. Hence why the Ten Commandments states, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is in your neighbor's. Why is that? Because then that's an accusation against God himself. Covetousness, greed is a debt that says that God owes me. Jealousy is a debt that says, or I'm sorry, jealousy is a debt that says God owes me. Greed and covetousness is a debt that says I owe myself. Jesus, or James, excuse me, the half-brother of Jesus, (coughs) warned the readers in the fourth chapter of his letter. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you Christians? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet, you, obta- uh, you, you cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But money can also be a blessing. I, I don't want you to end uh, with an end result that money is evil or having money is evil. Money can be used as a blessing. Pastor Mike McKinley writes that money and prosperity honestly acquired can be a great blessing from God. So honestly acquired can be a great blessing from God as God gives to us to supply our needs. God created the earth to be prosperous. And so we are to be productive. So there's nothing wrong with using your talents and abilities to make more, to create more. To be industrious. Prosperity is oftentimes the fruit of obedience and wisdom. Those who understand God's truth and understand the economy of God, it many times shows from obedience. And it's the fruit that God gives us. 
Wealth also helps us provide for the needy. We're to give back. When Jesus returns and makes all things new, the Bible tells us that God will again make his people prosperous. In other words, money itself is not evil or good. The biggest danger is not money, but how you and I think about money. And that's so important in how we use it. I want to share with this here on the screen is how to be a greedy materialist. How to avoid being that rich fool, that farmer. Number one, this is how you can be a greedy materialist. Don't see God as a source of wealth unless he hands you a check personally. Uh, you know, who pays you? Well, well, I get paid by, you know, X number. I remember I worked for Sunstreet, and I, I used this as an example. Well, I get a check, and it's signed by the treasurer or whomever of Sunstrand, that corporation. But it's not Sunstrand that pays me, but it's who? It's God in the end, for all things come from him. The rich farmer never acknowledges his huge harvest as a blessing from God. Do you, you read that? He never gave thanks to God for what God had given him. Nor does he see God in prayer concerning how to use it. I will, I will, I will. By the way, who else said that? I will, I will, I will. And Isaiah, Satan himself, the adversary of God, I will ascend and be like God. I will ascend to the most high. Never once asking God, what should I do with this? Thank you for giving this blessing. How can I use it for your glory? Number two, do whatever you can to stockpile your stuff. The farmer never considers the possibility that he was given his crop to share, not to keep. Maybe the size of his barns wasn't the problem, but how much he wanted to keep for just himself. Instead, at great time and expense, the man tears down perfectly good barns just to build larger ones for himself. How to be a greedy materialist? Just stockpile your money for yourself. Make sure you grab all that you can. Number three, here's how to be a greedy materialist. Feel really good about all you have. Look at what I have. My grain, my barns, my money. This guy assumed he had just guaranteed himself years of problem-free living through the acclimation of wealth. And I think this is something we need to be very careful, especially as we consider retirement. We, we want to feel good about how much we have. And when we do that, we deny who God is. God can take everything you have like that. Some of you can understand that. Some of you can say that's happened to me multiple times. But number four, here's how to be a greedy materialist. Does this describe you? Upgrade and indulge whenever possible. Whatever you have is not good enough. As soon as you can, get a bigger car, a bigger house, better golf clubs, uh, better membership somewhere, better clothing. I'm going to upgrade whenever and indulge myself whenever I can. The foolish farmer prepared to party like never before. It was like 1999, huh? You can cut that out, Tony. <laughs> he had worked long enough, doggone it, and now his ship has come in. It was time to take it easy, maybe redecorate the house, take a cruise or go shopping with other rich people. A brand new lifestyle had just opened up to him and he could not wait to enjoy it. 
That's a greedy materialist. One who thinks of just himself. There's three things to know about stuff, though. Three things. Real quickly. You've seen and heard me say this before. Number one, God made all that exist. There's nothing that you have that God has not given you. Number two, God owns and rules over all that exist. All animals, all earth, even your intelligence, your industrious, your creativity, all of that is from God. King David sums it up in Psalms chapter 24 where he says, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell in it. When you and I say, this is mine, this is my house, this is my car, this is my family, it changes our relationship to the possessions, to others, and to God. When we say, this is mine, and I will do with it what I want, it changes your relationship. It can change relationships in your marriage. This is my checking account, this is her checking account. This is my money, this is my, her money. This is her bills. This is my bill. It changes relationships. By the way, I think it was John Calvin. I'm not sure who said it. So forgive me if I get it wrong. Who says that God throughout history looks at all of creation and says, this is mine. Number three, God is the infinite treasure of the universe. I don't care what you have, what you've obtained, what you have earned. God is the most infinite treasure that you can own. God is rich in the sense that he himself is the infinite treasure of the universe. God does not leave or or have or have to create anything or to own anything in order to be rich. He didn't need this world. He didn't need to create a cattle on a thousand hills. He is rich in just who he is. You and I need to embrace that. If we lose this important truth, then we're prone to supplant God from his throne and replace it with stuff that money buys. So the first big idea is that you and I are stewards of God's kingdom. Stewardship is the belief that everything belongs to God. Everything that we have, your wife, your children, your husband, your money, your cars, All that you have belongs to God. And we are called to be stewards of it. And scripture informs us is that what's required of a steward, one who watches over something, is that they be found faithful. So you and I are called to be faithful with all that God gives us. And whether it is much or very little, we will one day stand before God and give account of all things that God has given Everything comes from the Father's loving hand. You and I need to understand that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father in light. This is captured by John in his first letter. Reading out when he writes, We know this is love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, God has blessed them and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not just love in word or deed, but in deed and in truth. Or word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
You see, this passage instructs us how to lay down our lives and to love in deed and truth. And we do that by giving, as the Trinity has called us to do. You see, the second big idea that we need to understand from this passage is that you and I are to give. We are to give to glorify God. We are to give to promote submission to him and to demonstrate our love for others. But there is a question. Why is it that you and I do not give back to God? Why do we not submit to God? Why do we not recognize that God has given us all things? I believe the main problem is that we do not give is because we fear. What if I need the money for something else? What if I give to the church? What if I give to someone? What if I provide for someone and all of a sudden I need that money? What will I do? We have a fear of are we saving enough? What about our, our tough times? What about our droughts? What if I have an unexpected expense, medical or car or with the house? What, what will I do? Then, then I myself will be lost and in need of someone's help. Then there's even a fear, is anybody else giving their money? Now we're wondering, well, am I the only one giving? Am I the only one doing stuff? What if, what if everyone else is? And we're fear that maybe they might get ahead. The problem is, is that we're so self-centered, so occupied with our own passions and desires. We're seeking to satisfy our own appetites that we forget that God has promised us in Philippians 4.19 is that God will supply every need according to his riches and glory. We forget the goodness of God. We do not trust God to provide. That's typically what's happening with that fear. We truly do not trust that God will provide for us a place to live or to put food on our table, take care of our children or of us in our old age. I'm reminded of the movie Shenandoah. I've spoken about this before with Jimmy Stewart. He plays Charlie Anderson. He's a farmer in Shenandoah, Virginia. And he prays at the dinner table. His wife was a Christian. She died at a young age, had many children. And she promised, we'll always take the kids to church and pray. So he reluctantly prays. And you remember this, I think I've shared before. He sets his children down, dinner's there, and he says, okay, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, we sowed it, and we harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but thank you, Lord, just the same for the food we're about to eat. Amen. He was the, he was the poor, rich farmer. He was a fool. Now, that's just fiction. But, but I have to say, I think there's probably many, many fathers and many husbands that are leading that type of prayer themselves because they're just going through the motions without truly submitting to God, without truly giving God the glory, without truly relying on God. And I say men and fathers because for men, our, our much, much of our, our essence and who we are, our identity, is, is taken up by how we provide and what type of provider we are, is it not? how much money we bring home, how much uh, of a nice of a place we can provide for our family, how much of a car we can give them. And see, this is what Jesus is warning them, not only in the persecution, but he says there's another obstacle that you need to recognize in discipleship. The first one is the obstacle of consumerism. The obstacle of consumerism. 
Now you might say, well, I'm not a consumer. Well, we all are consumers. Look at here what I share with you. I don't remember who I got this from, so I apologize if, if that person ever finds out here, but, but I don't remember who this quote comes from. But it said, consumerism is about consumption. It's not about how much you have. It's the concentrated effort to consume things in order to meet one's real and perceived needs and wants. One of consumers' driving principles is rights over responsibility. It's my money and I will do with it what I want. That, that's what consumerism is. It's not based on the amount of money you have to spend, but the way you think about the amount of money you spend. When we pursue as our means of fulfillment the things our neighbor possesses instead of pursuing God, we are worshiping these things rather than God alone. And so you and I have to recognize that many of us will have struggles with consumerism. That's what it means to go through uh, the, the Sears and Roebuck catalog or Hobby Lobby or window shopping. It's that desire to consume more. I may not be able to buy that, but if I could... I would. Ecclesiastes 5.10, King Solomon notes that he who loves money will never be satisfied, nor he who loves wealth with his income. He says that's vanity. The rich are not, health, are, not, are not happy with just $10 million. You and I know that because every time we go into a store, we see that it's $312 or $321 million, I think, right now for the lottery. 71 million if you do this one, 13 million. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, I'm drawn to that red light as well. For a dollar or two, I don't even know how much it costs. I might become a millionaire today. I've got a bridge I need to move. Why? Because we think of it as ours and what I could do with it. The second is the obstacle of covetousness. First one is the way we think. The second one of covetousness is our heart, what we desire. Jesus warned about uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. This is desire to have more. One of the identifying marks of a false teacher in 2 Peter is that they will have hearts trained in greed. He calls them accursed children. That's that desire to have more and more. And there are some things that you and I want, desire in life, but we need to look at that covetousness because very quickly our hearts go there. Paul said, I've obeyed all the law. I thought I was good until all of a sudden I considered covetousness. It's a true obstacle to our discipleship to our uncompromising commitment to follow Christ. See, do you struggle with consumerism? Are you trying to keep up with the Joneses? Do you find yourself struggling with jealousy, envy, and covetousness? Do you find it hard to give to others? Is your heart hardened towards those in need? And these two obstacles are not always so evident. Let me give you an illustration. I struggle with this on a daily basis. And I try to say it's because of a good heart. My desire is to take care of everybody. I, I'm a mercy giver. I wish that I could buy houses for everyone. Lord, if you just give me that $321 million, I will take care of everyone in our congregation. I want to take care of my children. 
I want to take care of my grandchildren. But then even in that, my consumerism and my covetousness is raising its ugly head and I'm looking at God not supplying the needs of my family and of my congregation, but whom? Myself. So all of a sudden, I have taken God out of it and Donald, I have made myself the hero of the story. So there's just an honest assessment of my own hearts. And it's the obstacles I face in my own discipleship. Those moments when I lay down my head or I allow my mind to wander. I want to provide for everyone. I want to give to everyone. But yet even in there, the motive is still covetousness, consumerism, and my own pride. Davy Harvey in his book, Worldliness, God, my heart and stuff answers the questions of how do we overcome these obstacles? He writes, one common fallacy that dazes some Christians is this, is virtual giving. So please listen. That's a giving that occurs only in one's mind if things were only different. If I had more, we say I would give more to the church. I would give more to others. I, I, would, I would give more to charity. That's virtual giving. If I had it, I would give more. In reality, the majority, if not all of us, are the rich farmer. Because we are fools. For as David Harvey writes, in reality, if we had more, we would undoubtedly find new ways to use it or store it for ourselves. And you say, not me. Well, let me ask you, what did you do with all the stimulus money you got over the last few years? Was your first prayer? Oh, wow. Thank you, Lord. How could I help someone else in need? Or did you go buy a gun like I did? Tony, please cut that out. <laughs> did you use it to go on a vacation? Take a cruise? Pay off some bills? What are you going to do with your taxes this year? Is your first thought, Lord, I got some money. How can I help someone else? How can I give it? How can I give to missions? Can I give it to the deacon's fund? Now, now your case, may not that may not be. I'm not telling you to do that. But again, when we get a windfall, we think of how to use it or store it for ourselves. Maybe it's just a gift or inheritance from a grandmother or from an aunt or an uncle. We use it for ourselves. We are called to be faithful stewards of all that God has given us. That's a disciple of Christ. These obstacles will come, but you and I can overcome these obstacles when we glorify him through giving. You've heard that. that hopefully you've gotten that. The only way that we get through this is by having a heart of recognizing that all things have been given to us so that we may give to others. It's important for us to realize how we're to give. You'll see it here on the screen. Again, you've seen this before. You and I are to give sacrificially. <clears throat> it ought to cost you something. I love King David. When he goes before God and he wants to repent and confess his sin, he goes to a man's house and he says, I need to make an offering. The man says, well, here's my cattle. You can take some. Take, take this wood. And David says, no, I will not give to the Lord that which I have not paid for. 
Do we give sacrificially? Does it cost us something to give? We're to give generously. God is a generous giver. We're to give intentionally. And I think this is one that you and I have to understand. Many times we just give of our, our last cents to go. Oh, I have a couple bucks. I'll put that in a donation box or I'll, I'll help someone out. But we need to be intentional. Lord, I desire to give this much. Give as the Lord has given to you or given as the Lord has what's, has has prompted you to. And lastly, we are to give cheerfully. <clears throat> Sacrificially, generously, intentionally, and cheerfully. Paul says this, I say this not as command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He wants the church of Corinth to show that their love is genuine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he, he points to Christ, who in Philippians uh, despises the shame and, 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 and empties himself of his glory, not of his divinity, but of his glory, and comes and humbles himself as a human. So what you and I have to understand is that your attitude and your thinking about money speaks volumes of your attitude and thinking about Christ. See, here's the point. When you give out of your abundance or even out of your poverty, you are sharing the gospel. It is opening a door. I give because God gave to me. I love God because he loved me. Bible calls us not to give just out of our riches, but of our poverty. He calls us to be give generously, sacrificially, intentionally, and cheerfully. So I come here to a close. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm trying to encourage you. If there's obstacles in your discipleship, Jesus wants you to be aware of this. He wants you to overcome them. Do you need to repent of wrong attitudes towards money this morning? Are you struggling with covetousness and consumerism? Would you commit to serving God, uh, serving God and others by giving and through your giving? And what is preventing you from using and storing your money for God's glory rather than your own? What is stopping you? Some of you here today are mature in this area. And you're able to worship and trust in God and able to help others with budgeting, advice, and modeling this grace of giving. I'd like to encourage you, if you are mature in this area, please let us know, because there is many in our congregation that could use your wisdom and your, 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 your knowledge in helping them adopt the practices of, of wisdom, of godly living. Some of you are here today are in need of that type of help. Let us know. We want to, I know it's embarrassing. I know it's sometimes difficult to let other people know, but, but we want to help you in this area. I do not want uh, giving to be an obstacle to your discipleship. We want to supply what is lacking in your faith and trusting that God will supply all your needs as he promised. I want to leave you with this last verse, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. I think if you and I could capture this, it would help us in our discipleship and our pursuit of following Christ. 
Solomon says, two things I ask of you, or I'm not, not Solomon, but one of the other writers in the Proverbs. I had two things I've asked of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, any of you ever prayed like that? Hey, Lord, don't make me too rich. Don't make me too poor. Pray maybe not too poor, but not too rich. But he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Rich or poor, you could be like the foolish man who rejects God. Let it not be named among us. Let us be disciples who love to give for the glory of God. Amen? There we have bowed and every eye closed. I just want to take a moment to pause and consider. I know these are always difficult messages. Consider what scripture has to say with the words of Jesus about possessions and the way we think of them. Would you pray and ask the spirit to work in your heart and to show you in what ways that you may need to confess? What ways must you repent of? Or what, what, what promises much, must, must you claim? In what way must you grow? Knowing that God will give you that. And then pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's work as he leads and guides you through that. And one last thing I would like to give you is I'd like to encourage you to, to we want to go back to this starting next week is, is if anyone is needing prayer for the elders, from the elders to pray over you, we want to get back to doing that. Uh, we'll even do so here after communion because it's important for us to pray for one another. And finances may be one of those areas you just need God to pray over. Again, we want to encourage you as God has called us to love one another and to encourage one another. We would love to do that with you. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.